Governor Strickland pitches the Trans-Ohio Railroad. Does Columbus need six police helicopters? And city employees don't have to be townies. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at Coside, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Ann Fisher, Metro reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Emily Reamer, Statehouse reporter for ABC6 and Fox 28. Dale Butland, Democratic strategist. And Terry Casey, Republican strategist. The push for passenger rail in Ohio appears to be entering the final stages. Governor Strickland was in Washington this week lobbying for federal stimulus money to establish passenger rail service from Cincinnati to Columbus to Cleveland. Strickland is looking for $400 million, which is up from the original startup estimate of $250 million. And Fisher, the Ohio project apparently is on the administration, the Obama administration's top 10. Mm -hmm. It's looking pretty good based on what we've been hearing out of Washington. Do you think it'll happen? Well, I mean, if, if any of them will, I mean, this probably will. Uh, if it's not, particularly if it's on its top 10, it makes sense. It's obvious all you have to do is look at the picture in the paper and see the gap. Uh, if that's a priority for the nation, uh, then certainly it's a huge gap in a very populous state um, between, uh, you know, the eastern seaboard and the, the farther into the Midwest. So, yeah, and in, having been someone who had to drive uh, five and a half hours to get to a train in Chicago last summer, uh, I would I can see um, personally definite need. The only other alternative was to drive to Cincinnati and pick up the train at about 2.30 a.m. So, yeah. If the feds are spending $8 billion on rail, shouldn't some of it come here for this corridor? Well, in theory, but we're also competing with some other parts of the country that have a lot higher density population and a lot more use of public transit and to me the scary thing is when you look at the history in Ohio there's a guy maybe Dale remembers Keith uh, or Art Wachowski who wanted to do the train they put it on the ballot and then it was going to be five billion dollars the people voted it down 70-30 so now we've got an idea that might be 250 million it's now at 400 million and to me the killer was to get from Cleveland to Cincinnati in this rail it would take you six hours People want, if it would be high speed, that would be great, but you can't build high speed in Ohio. The the billions and billions and billions. The arguments have changed about mass transit. It's not about speed. It's about convenience. It's about the, 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 the footprint. You know, the, and, and it's about a lot of other things besides just getting somewhere fast. Not only that, but the speed issue, Terry, Initially, they're talking about a maximum speed of 79 miles an hour, but they're talking about ramping that up to 120 miles an hour within a rel relatively short period of time. And the truth is, the 3C corridor is the most densely populated corridor in the country without passenger rail service. If we're going to make a move in Ohio, we've got to get ourselves uh, linked with other high-speed rail around the country. And that goes back to your point, if they're going to spend eight billion dollars uh, to do this, we certainly ought to get our share of this. But well, I think that it also raises the point, though, if they're going to spend $8 billion and we're going to spend $400 million to build it here, what happens after it's built? How do we pay for it year after year? I mean, I think it's something they're struggling with now, trying to figure out how to pay for things, and I just don't know that they can, will they be afford, will there be enough people riding it to pay for it? 
what was it, ten million dollars a year just to maintain it? Real, and, and you think about rail in Ohio and where it fits into the larger matrix. You're not just talking about Ohioans now. You're talking about people from all over the country that can now travel through Ohio by rail. They cannot do that now. It is impossible. And a lot more people every year, Amtrak says, their rail passenger numbers are going up, up, up every year since about 1992. But people can't participate with that and go through Ohio. So I don't know if Ohio wants to be left behind on that. You know, that's well, but if question. you really look at the numbers, fiscally, Amtrak is not going up, 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 except a little bit on the Northeast Corridor between D.C., New York, and Boston. But the rest of the country, it's a disaster. And like, as you experience, to get on Amtrak now in Ohio, you got to do it at about 2.45 in the morning in Cleveland, and then it takes you an unbelievable amount of time to get to D.C. Well, it's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, you're not going to take the train out of Cleveland because you got to be there at 3 o'clock in the morning. But if you can get down to downtown Columbus at 6 in the morning, you might be willing to take it and then connect to the Chicago area. Right, train and, I don't have to, and if you don't have to drive to Cincinnati and be there at 2.30 in the morning and park your car and yep. heaven knows where. And I think that the most important point here is that it's going to happen because the, the uh, top-ranking Republican in the Ohio congressional delegation, John Boehner, had uh, this to say. He said, I have been involved with this issue for 25 years. If it's only going to go between the three C's, it is nothing but a boondoggle. But if it's part of a national high-speed rail system, now you're talking about something that will make it worthwhile. I think he's got a point, and I think that's why we're going to get our share. But we've yet to have any financial business model done of at what price will people pay to ride the rail, go from where they live in Westerville down to Columbus, then go up to downtown Cleveland, then to get to their aunt out in Rocky River. Well, you could say we subsidize auto travel because we don't charge, well, most of Ohio doesn't charge a toll to ride on 71. But but how many tax. hundreds of millions, billions of dollars have we spent on on the on improving the highways. Well, people pay, pay gas taxes who may yeah. never even leave the city, and they're paying the gas tax for the for the to to, to pave the roads all over the state. But and the mayor of Columbus gets gas tax money to clean the snow off, patch streets, maybe uh, build downtown boondoggles, etc. Well, you know, Alleged. here we go with the boondoggle. You know, <laughs> here's the truth, Terry. You guys have got to be something other than the party of no, which is what you say to everything that might make Ohio more attractive or more competitive. And discrimination against gays? No. Gambling and nightlife? No. High-speed rail? No. you got to start saying yes to something other than bigotry and tax, tax cuts for the rich. <laughs> it, it's got to make financial sense. And by the time they add it all up, because you can't run on these existing tracks. I've ridden the rails high-speed in France and Belgium and other countries, and it takes special tracks engineered just to work that way. Okay, let's get to our second topic. As officials threaten to lay off scores of police officers if the income tax issue fails, the city of Columbus continues to spend a lot of money on its police helicopter fleet. WOSU's Mandy Trimble reports this week Columbus spends about $3.5 million a year to keep helicopters in the air 16 hours a day. Turns out Columbus has one of the largest police chopper fleets in the country, much larger than fleets in similar sized cities and comparable to fleets in larger cities. I mean, even larger fleets than larger cities. Emily Reamer, you've reported on the governor, the governor, the mayor's security staff and how that seemed to be large. This seems to be large. The, the taxpayers pay attention to these minute budget items? You know, I think they do, because when we ran that story, I was overwhelmed at the response that we received, both from people that said you should never have looked at that issue because his, he's the mayor and he deserves his protection, and from other people that said, 
we're appalled by that. It's ridiculous. I think the the, um, the underlying issue is that if you're going to ask people for a tax increase, you have to convince them that you've done everything you can to cut um, on the back end. And it would seem that with this helicopter issue, I think in Mandy's report she had said that there's New York City has seven helicopters. I mean, you know, you talk about New York City compared to Columbus, the size of it, they were spending four hundred thousand dollars on gas alone. So I think the issue really is, have they done enough and will people believe they have cut enough in order to ask them to reach into their wallets? And if you look at the Howarth report, over a hundred pages. Uh, this is the report that the advisory panel that suggested the tax increase in the in Well, the it fee. said, and if you talk to Bob Howarth as I have, that was one option to go for a half percent. They could have gone for a quarter percent, but he also has a huge number of things in there of areas where the city can tighten the belt and Columbus hasn't started to renegotiate some of the contracts that are far more generous than what normal working people, whether for state government, private sector, get in terms of benefits, pension contributions. Uh, but I think it'd be a lot more prudent to do maybe a temporary tax of a smaller amount that fits the need and look at other capital projects like over $100 million being spent downtown on bridges and parks, which are pretty, but if we can't afford police and we can't keep recreation centers open, why keep building more parks downtown? You know, Mandy pointed out that they had just built that they're they're getting ready to move into the new facility, and I wonder how much of it has to do with that emotionally yeah. that they just want to have ha want to have something to put in there. But uh, they seemed a little rigid. I wasn't sure until the end of the story. Then they said, "Well, if we absolutely have to," mm -hmm. so they left the the gate open. The police really str argue strongly for the choppers. They say it's it's a it's. They use them for patrolling in Columbus. That's the big difference. Other cities don't use them for patrolling. Columbus uses them for patrolling. But it's $730 an hour if you do the math. That's a lot of money for patrolling. Yeah, it, and it's $3 million a year that yeah. they spend on this. I think Emily has a very good point, and that is before you can ask people and expect people to raise their taxes, especially in a down economic time, you've got to convince them that you've cut everything you can. This clearly is an area that's going to have to go, particularly when it's paired off against the loss of 300 beat cops. Sure. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Any police officer will tell you that the backbone of a force is the beat cop. It's, and uh, it would be nice to have these helicopters, but uh, as was pointed out, New York City has 10 times our population, and they only have one more helicopter than we do. Uh, Austin, Texas, and uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, cities comparable to us, have two. So I think this is going to have to go. Getting to the strategy, it came out this week that the, the, the supporters of the tax are going after retirees because they really won't have to pay it because pension checks and, and Social Security checks won't get taxed by the income tax. Well, but for the retirees, we don't know yet what's going to happen on the trash tax, which the Columbus Dispatch editorially has beaten, beaten the drum for. And the mayor said, well, I won't raise a trash tax, but if he lets the tra trash pickup be taken over by Swaco, then Swaco will raise the tax. It still is going to cost people, particularly the poor, more. And we still don't know on what the solution is to the downtown that's arena bailout. That's not on the table he yet. He has though. mentioned that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it's, it's, it's popped up that he may consider re, re going back to the trash, trash collections, mm -hmm. or I mean, sorry, the um, yard waste the yard waste pickup um, if the, if the Tax passes. Yeah. One of the strategies of this tax is the insiders versus the outsiders. A lot of people right. who pay the tax don't live in the city, can't vote on it. But now you're, it's an intra-city squabble where the retirees will vote for the tax, but their neighbors will have to pay it. Is that a wise strategy or is that a, a must strategy in this point? Well, what they're trying to do is peel off segments of the electorate, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, look, I, I think there's a broader point here. And, that is, and I, this feeds into a topic we're going to talk about a little later. 
everybody's in a budget mess now. The state is, you know, the, mis the municipalities are, everybody is. I think that Columbus, uh, except they have to do a little better job of cutting, but I don't think that we're, any of us are going to be able to cut our way out of this budget mess. This is the worst economy in 70 years. Tax revenues have gone down. Columbus has not increased its uh, taxes in 20 years. Regular people understand you can't go to the store and buy anything for the same price that you bought it for 20 years ago. Costs go up, and, and, and at least the mayor has had the guts to call for a tax increase. The business community, the most influential members of it, have supported it. I think that we're doing it the right way here. Terry, does, that, does the business community support the major CEOs in town supporting the tax hike? Does that lessen the argument that this is going to be bad for business? Well, some of the business interests downtown, quite frankly, have a big conflict of interest because they want bailed out on certain projects like Nationwide Arena, the Arena District, the Blue Jackets. There's other kind of pet projects that they have that serve their financial interest. Uh, if you talk to small business people, you'll find a different story because they're struggling a little bit more. They're not making hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars a year, so it's going to bite them more. So a few business people downtown is not representative of all business people in central Ohio. Okay. Our third topic, the Ohio Supreme Court says cities and towns cannot require their employees to live within the city that pays their salaries. In a 5-2 to two decision, the court ruled the state legislature, which passed a law barring such residency rules, trumps the home rule of cities and towns. The court basically said, according to the Constitution, state law trumps all home rules passed by local authorities. Dale Butlin, we'll get to the implications of this ruling in a moment. But first, should a police officer or firefighter have to live in the city that pays them? Well, that, that, of course, is the issue. You have two competing rights here, as it were. On the one hand, you've got the right of people to live where they want to live. On the other hand, you've got the home rule rights of cities. And that was what the court was weighing when it made its decision. The cities say that the reason we want to have people, employees, live in the city is because the response times are quicker, for instance, uh, when there's an emergency or they have to be called in. They say they also have, if you have people living in the city, they have a more vested interest in the city and so forth. So that's understandable. A lot of cities, I think there's 140 municipalities in this state that do have this requirement. The court, on the other hand, uh, did they overreach? Maybe so. But I think the interesting question, Mike, is going to be, since all the Supreme Court members are Republicans, will our friend Terry complain about legislating from the bench in this case, or is that something you reserve only for Democrats? <laughs> Dale, I'm glad you asked the question, because the Supreme Court didn't legislate from the bench. They said the Ohio General Assembly, both Democrats and Republicans, were correct to pass this law that allows freedom where people can pick where they want to live. And so freedom, I think, is very good, and they merely affirmed the legislative right. And part of the home rule thing goes back to the agrarian passed in Ohio when we had a legislature before the 64 Supreme Court ruling that required districts that were based on population. At one point, Ohio's legislature was very rural-based and didn't give adequate representation to the urban areas. That's changed. We're but in the, the 21st century. The modern understanding of home rule is the same kind of understanding we have about local school districts, too. That people want to have an impact and want to be able to affect how their city operates. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, that might have been the, the reason, the, the, you know, the impetus for it at some time in the past, but it's evolved over time and it's changed. So uh, that doesn't necessarily hold up in terms of the right and the wrong of this. Emily, mm -hmm. Central Ohio really isn't as affected by this as other no. parts of the state. Cleveland, 
really is affected by this. They have this residency requirement. And the Plain Dealer reported that the police officers were high-fiving each other in the, in the, in the hallways over this. This yeah. could really, they fear, lead to an exodus of middle-class people from the city. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm sorry. No. Like, please, well, that's, okay. exactly, yeah. but that's exactly, I think you're exactly right, and that is what the article was talking about, is that all these folks will be leaving, and you have then tax issues, you have then school district issues, because you're relying on certain amounts of, um, of money there. But, you know, like you had said, in central Ohio, it, here, we, well, from what we've seen, it's not so much of an issue because they can live in contiguous counties. So, but then again, to Dale's point, I thought that was a great point, that people who live in a community have a vested interest in it, mm -hmm. and they want it to be a safe place, and they want it to be a better place. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, to understand that the reason this ruling was so controversial, Terry, I don't think that it's correct that the legislature has passed a law saying that people can live wherever they wish. Well, they As I understand... Dale Williams got grief from Cleveland people for uh, being for the freedom. Justice Pfeiffer, writing for the majority in this case, said that the Ohio Constitution's authorization of the legislature to enact laws, quote, providing for the comfort, health, safety, and general welfare of all employees overrides other legal arguments, including home rule powers. Now, you know, um, if they had passed such a law saying that people can live where they want, that's one thing, but he, apparently anyway, took the constitutional took the Constitution's provision that the legislature can do this and say that and said that overrides the home rule, therefore this particular home rule thing is unconstitutional. Right. Well, I think if you double check, there actually was a state law approved that said they could have the freedom and in essence cities couldn't restrict their rights where they live and it was more of an internal legal thing of which clause of the Constitution had greater power, the general purposes versus the home rule, and that's where Pfeiffer was splitting the hair. Okay. Our fourth topic. Last week we said the state budget process had entered the blood from a stone phase. Lawmakers were trying to balance the budget with money that's not there. The money is still not there. In fact, there is less of it. The hole is even deeper, $3.2 billion. So now lawmakers could be entering the musical chairs phase. Now stay with me here. There's one chair left with Democrats and Republicans waiting for the music to stop. When it does, the one left standing will have to propose a tax hike. Terry Casey, will we see that tax hike? Uh, I think if I'm listening to the governor who says tax hikes are bad, the Democrat House chairman uh, saying tax hikes are bad and we've got to live within our means, I think because of the pending 2010 election, they're, they're going to do anything and everything to avoid a tax hike. They're going to cut. To me, the most uh, puzzling thing is I looked at some of the newspaper headlines around Ohio, and some said the hole was $3.2 billion, some said $2.3. Uh, I talked to a former budget director on the way here, and there's great differences of whether or not they can meet federal standards on what they call maintenance of effort, because if they cut too much, they'll violate federal law. So there really is, this is a twisted pretzel in a lot of different ways. How do they straighten it out? Isn't that billion dollars because the Senate has already mm -hmm. cut a billion dollars in their version of the budget? Right. I think it depends that's on what it comes version you're yeah. talking about. Right. A lot of that has yeah. to do with that. And also, I think Senate President um, uh, Harris mentioned that he too was waiting to hear from the governor on on uh, the tax thing. It wasn't just the uh, House Democrats. So, uh, and Harris, of course, is a Republican. Yeah, and the truth is, both both sides are equally at fault. And it goes back to something I said last week, and I'll say again. We, all of us, Democrats and Republicans, have to stop demagoguing this tax issue. It is ludicrous to suggest that we will never, ever raise taxes again, no matter what. That, that doesn't pass the smell test. What I've heard is the demagoguery has seemed to have subsided. 
in recent weeks. You see people saying, I don't want to talk about taxes, right. but they're not saying, read my lips, no new taxes. They're saying things like, well, call the governor. It, it, or if he proposes it, we'll yes, look at it. It is so tenuous right now. Yeah. They're just like... Yes. You're right. They're all looking at each other. And I think they're also, they, several people, I've heard the phrase, we're looking for leadership from the executive. But, but like all heads are swiveling that way to the state house, to that governor's office, looking for leadership. And there are some options that are out on the table. I was talking to some folks today. They're talking about what about a temporary sales tax increase? You know, raise it by a half percent temporarily. Um, you know, what about getting rid of the $20 exemption we all get when we file our state tax returns. I mean, you know, Even little you things like that. you talk about a temporary sales tax increase, you immediately get into the philosophical differences in the types of taxes. And of course, sales taxes is uh, unfairly burdens low-income people or people on fixed incomes. So it, it all comes into play regardless whether it's temporary or not. Look, all the same arguments. How about this? In 2005, Ohio passed a 21% tax reduction. Some of us said at the time that was a bad idea because when you permanently cut taxes in a good economic time, you're setting yourself up for the fall when things go sour. If you just reversed half of that 21% tax cut, which we, most people would agree we can't afford now, if you just took half it, that's $2 billion over the biennium. That, that would close two-thirds of your hole right there. We'll see if that happens. Topic five, there are a couple of news items in the week, in the news this week, that uh, will have an impact on next year's statewide election. Lee Fisher changed his very nuanced stance uh, and now appears to be in support of gay marriage. And former Attorney General Mark Dan settled his case admitting to improperly spending campaign funds and was fined $1,000. Republican call it a slap on the wrist, and they immediately tried to link it to Richard Cordray. Dale, first to Lee Fisher. Is he moving to the left because of Jennifer Bruner? You know, I suppose that's one interpretation. Um, I think it may be as simple as this. I think Lee's views may have evolved on this issue, just like the views of hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of Americans, has evolved. I just took a look at this before we came on the show. In um, March of 2004, 22%, this is according to a New York Times CBS national poll. In March of 2004, 22% of Americans supported same-sex marriage. April of 2009, 42% now support it. Almost doubled in five years. Uh, the truth is the country is moving. We have six states now, uh, some of which have been done by the courts. So some he by the, following by the, the polls or leading the, question, the polls? Well, exactly. The question is, I mean, Lee's a super smart person, very well read, very well educated, you know, very plugged in. Um, and all of a sudden, in amidst this, this primary uh, cam, you know, uh, uh, campaign, he changes. It, it, that I think the timing of it is critical. And, 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 he, he, and he's changed from the position that Hillary Clinton has, that Bill Clinton has, that uh, even President Obama has. And I think moving this far to the left in Ohio is a mistake. He's always you, don't, you don't get votes from California or New York or New England. In Ohio, I think Ohio is still a more conservative well, state yeah. on this issue, including in the black community, which could hurt him. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting because ultimately, even if he wins, and this, this helps him win, although you, it may not be what's driving it, he still has to run in a general election, and that would make it 
um, even more interesting. He's he's been in support of civil unions and recognizing right. legal recognition right. of these right. things. It, the gay marriage is what he said he had questions about when he was asked many years ago. Mark Dan, thousand dollar penalty, misusing campaign funds. Republicans, Emily, immediately jumped on that as a slap on the wrist. Yeah, they are not happy, and I think a lot of people were probably surprised as well because some of these violations, you know, things like taking vacations with your family and charging it to the campaign, you know, three of them were dismissed. So he's only admitted to one. Um, I think people may think that that was not appropriate, that perhaps it should have sent a stronger message, especially when just a few weeks before you find someone the highest fine in the history of the state of Ohio for campaign finance irregularities. And this man was supposed to be the top law enforcement officer in the state. Richard, so, and, and, and I think Cordray's gonna have some serious questions because it was his office, the Attorney General's office, that brokered the deal. And if you can get $50,000 in illegal benefits and only pay $1,000 when you're caught, uh, that's, that's not a good example, particularly with all the corruption that's now breaking, now people being indicted today up in Cuyahoga County. 10 second rebuttal, Dale. Well, I just want to say, first, um, was the $1,000 penalty appropriate? Probably not. Should have been closer to the $183,000 he's gotten in his account. But this bloodlust on the part of the Republicans, I think it's a little overreaching. Look, the guy is ruined. He lost his job, he lost his reputation, he uh, lost his license to practice law. He's been punished. And I think that this Republican outcry for more, more, more rings a little hollow when you realize that AIG wreaked a whole lot more havoc on this state and our nation than did Mark Dan, and yet a lot of the Republicans didn't even want these guys to lose their bonuses. All right, let's get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Ann Fisher, you're up first. Okay, a few months ago, I thought that uh, Jennifer Berner would back down, and maybe even by now. But in, in, in calling a few people here and there and talking to a few people in the last few days about this um, to prepare for the show, I'm going to change my prediction. And maybe she's not going to back down as quickly, if at all. Okay, Emily. Uh, okay, I usually go with the political stuff, but I am a Boston girl at heart, and last <laughs> night David Ortiz broke his hitting slump, so I am predicting that next week Big Poppy will hit three home runs for the Red Sox. Three homers <laughs> in four games. <laughs> Who's counting? Dale. There's an issue that's going to come up in the next number of weeks. Kind of stay with me on this. has to do that's going to affect every car owner in this state, and it has to do with something called credit reporting ratings that... Uh, insurance companies use to raise rates. There is a prominent member of this city who's going to go to the mat on this. Might even, there's going to be, I suspect, some hearings in Washington, and I think the insurance industry is going to be on the carpet on this. Okay. Terry. Back to the state budget. One solution that's going to come up front and center, maybe even led by the House Speaker with a quiet wink from the governor, that's called gambling video slots. And in order to get it to $2 billion, there may be a 50, 75, or $100 million per location licensing fee plus the taxes. Okay, that's Columbus on the record for this week. Before we go, though, it's graduation time at OSU. That means we lose some students that work for us. So many, many thanks to Devante Johnson, Manny Wilson, who runs the teleprompter, and Peter Wolf, who runs that overhead bald spot camera that my son likes to make fun of. Thanks very much. Good luck in the future. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Check out our conversation at the website. Our question this week, should the city employees live in the city that pays them? For our crew, for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.